0: turn our attention to God and ask God's a blessing and prayer on the Word. Lord, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us, that you are the teacher, that you care to instruct us and to help us to grow in faith. Help us to grow this morning. Speak to our hearts through your Word and your Holy Spirit so that we may be more like you, that we might love God and love our neighbor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For the past year and a half on and off, I've been doing some study, particularly particular my study leaves, uh, these two essays that were written by two great theologians, Herman Bavink, the great Dutch Reformed theologian, and, and, and um, C.S. Lewis, great apologist. And both of these men wrote essays on the topic of equality, and they wrote critically of equality. They questioned equality as a social good. Now, I realize, in our age, that sounds like anathema. How could everybody even think that equality might not be good for society? We need to be a little bit careful as we judge these folks, one of imposing our thinking and the way we think about things today back on them as they were dealing with a different time. And also, just to say that... Um, they were not advocating for some type of you know, racist uh, structure or a you know, lack of equality before the law, those type of things. Herman Bavink, when he came to America to give lectures, was um, found uh, American racism reprehensible. He was pro-women suffrage, he promoted the education of girls, all those type of things. So It wasn't about that, he was they were really critiquing the state power to enforce uh, equal outcomes and what C.S. Lewis called flat equality. And I was studying these essays, and I was doing that, I was thinking to myself, why did these people write on this? Of all topics, what compelled them to write on such an odd topic? What was going on that made them put their pen to paper and write these essays? It's a good question to ask, right? whenever you read anything, whether it's an essay by a philosopher, a treatise by a theologian, a poem by a poet, or a book of the Bible, it's important to ask, why did the author write it? What was going on behind the scenes that compelled this person to write this book or letter or poem? And when we look at Bobbing and Lewis, we can think about the times in which they lived. Bob you know, he wrote this essay in 1913. It was on the, you know, the eve here of, the, of World War I. There was social upheaval. There were revolutions and civil wars. It was a time, a tumultuous time. Lewis wrote his essay in 1943 in the midst of the Second World War, where the threats of communism and Nazism were so strong and where socialism was developing uh, taking root in England. And knowing those things help us understand why these people wrote on the topics they wrote about. And the same thing applies to the Bible. When you come to the book of the Bible, you look at why did the author write. And particularly, you do that when you come to these epistles. And we're coming to one in our time of preaching. I'll be preaching on the book of Colossians, the letter to Colossians. And it's important to ask ourselves, what was the reason this letter was written? We call this, in theology, the occasion. What was the occasion for the letter? And so as we begin this new sermon series on Colossians this morning, I want to ask, just answer two simple questions about this book. Two simple questions. First of all, is why did Paul write it? Why did he feel compelled to put pen to paper? Why did he write this letter to the church at Colossae? And secondly, why should you care? Why should you care now, 2,000 years later, why Paul wrote this letter way back then? That's our outline this morning. That's where we're beginning this series. Two simple questions. Why did Paul write it? Why should you care? Let's get at it. Why did Paul write this letter? Well, let's start with a little bit of facts, so some things we do know, and I'll do this quickly about what was going on here, a little bit of uh, things we do know about this book. We know that this letter was written in 60 AD, or approximately that time. Paul was in prison when he wrote the letter. We know that Colossae was a city in Asia, minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, we know that it was once an important economic center, but it was kind of going through a time of decline in that regard. We know that the population there was primarily and overwhelmingly Gentile, but there was a significant Jewish influence in the community and within the church at Colossae, which will be important as we go through this. We also know that Paul didn't establish this church. He did not found this church. In fact, he had never visited the church. Epaphras, not Paul, had done that work at Colossae. So that why did Paul write this letter to a church that he didn't found, that he never visited? Why did he write this letter? Because there was a problem in the church. And there always is. It's true, right? There's always a problem. But there was a problem, a problem that was so large, so important, so significant, that an apostle had to be called upon for help. That a Luckily, Epaphras uh, set out and sought out Paul because an intervention was necessary. It was a serious problem, and that's why Paul wrote. Now, what was that problem? Well, we get a little bit of insight. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where Paul writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. Paul wrote this letter because of a deceptive philosophy. Buddy Ed at home is having his ears perk up, but it was. It was this philosophy that was going on, being taught, that was being propagated, and that was taking hold in the hearts of the members of this church, and Paul was writing this letter to confront that, to get them to disavow that, to, to basically be liberated from that deceptive philosophy. The letter to Colossians is an intervention. Paul is trying to stop that process. But what was that philosophy? Really, we get some idea from those verses, but it doesn't really tell us what it is. What was it? What was the nature of it? Historically, theologians have called this the Colossian heresy. If you read your Bibles, if you get a little introduction, you always hear that Paul was dealing with the Colossian heresy. Well, what, what was that heresy? What was the nature of it? Well, I don't even think it's a good thing to call it a heresy. Because first, that assumes that there was an orthodoxy from what you could be heretical, right? This is very early in the church. The the doctrine of the church is hardly even defined that way. So it gives a false impression. It also gives a false impression because when you think about heresy, you think about false teachers, people coming in from the outside, teaching something that's false, leading people away. But that really wasn't the case here in this church. The problem they had was not from external teachers coming in to the church. The problem they had was inside themselves. It was the people in the church who were embracing internally this deceptive philosophy. They were adding it to their faith in Christ as if it was some type of supplement. It's the problem that we call syncretism of adding two things together, Google Dictionary definition of syncretism, the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of two different religion, cultures, or schools of thought. It's the PB&J, right? It is bringing together two things, the peanut butter and jelly, but here it is Christ and this other philosophy. That was the problem. Now, that is enough. We're going to look at this philosophy. We're going to flesh it out. As we go through this book, we'll get to see what the exact nature of it was, to the extent that we can arrive at that. But for this morning, all we need to know is that that was the problem of joining this philosophy to Christ. It's enough to answer that first question, why did Paul write this letter? He wrote this letter because he saw that these Christians' faith were at, was at risk because they were joining Christ to something else. They were adding something to Christ in their faith. That's why Paul wrote this letter. Now let's think about that second question. Why should you care? Why should you care? How does this apply to us today? So let's give that some thought. It's probably the more powerful and important question. And the way I want to think about that at first is to think about the two ins. The two in's that you see in verse 2. Verse 2 goes like this. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, in Colossae. In Christ, in Colossae. It is that second in, in Colossae, that tells us that this is an ancient book, right? This was written to a different audience. It wasn't written to us directly and first and primarily. It was written to a church 2,000 years ago in this place in Asia Minor. And that makes it feel very distant. It's a different culture, different attitudes, different experiences than ours. But it's that other end, the first end, where Paul says to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, in Colossae, in Christ. That is where the point of contact comes. Because they were in Christ. And we are in Christ. And it is that in that connects us to this ancient church, to this ancient people, and the occasion for this letter was directly at that problem. The problem was that they were forgetting they were in Christ, and that's what mattered, that Christ had the supremacy, that it was Christ alone, not Christ and something else. And that problem, beloved, is not an ancient problem. That problem is to the saints in Christ here at RCRC or in any other church forever. It's a perennial problem. It's a problem that C.S. Lewis called Christianity AND. Christianity AND. Lewis is marvelous at just subtly bringing out these things in great ways, in ways we can access them and understand them, and he illustrates it so well in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape is kind of like this grand uh, demon uh, who's trying to help uh, out Wormwood, his apprentice. He's trying to teach, he's training a a young demon on how do you get Christians to give up their faith. And in that, there's one letter in that, uh, Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape writes this to Wormwood, who's the the apprentice. My dear Wormwood, excuse me, The real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Your affectionate uncle, Scruton. You see what he's saying You see the plan that he is advocating to really get at Christianity and to destroy it. You don't have to go and attack Christianity. You don't have to tear it down. You don't have to try to come up with great arguments. All you need to do is convince those who are in Christ just to add something to it. To dilute it. To adulterate it. To add something to it to their faith, Christianity and that risk beloved is timeless, it's our risk, we face it today. This is why you should care about this letter because we are constantly tempted to add something to Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples of how this happens. We are tempted to do this, what I would say, adding something to Jesus with our mindset Right? Jesus and the mindset of the age. I'm reading a biography about Herman Boving, a great biography. And in the biography, it talks about Herman Boving's struggle. So he's basically, a hundred years ago, he's going through this struggle. He's going through a struggle of trying to be an Orthodox Calvinist in a changing world. And trying to relate to what that means. He wants to be part of this modern world, but he wants to maintain his orthodoxy. And he wrestles with that obvious tension that happens every day. And don't we stand at the same point in our lives? We want to be faithful Christians, And we look at things going on in our world and our culture, and some of them are thinking, okay, maybe we need to think about this differently. Maybe there's something here. And there's always this temptation. How do I maintain who I am in Christ and live in this modern world? And part of the danger in that, right, is that you can begin to imbibe, you can begin to accommodate, you can begin to give into or have the thoughts and philosophies and traditions of the world around us lead you to add something to the Christian mind. Lead you to accommodate in a way that something else comes on par with Jesus in your life and how you think. Christianity and. David Garland describes this risk in his commentary. When Christians do not understand their faith, they are likely to water down the gospel and accommodate it to cultural expectations. They will cut out any offending articles of faith or append specious ones more in accord with the fashion of the age. Just kind of so easily discard 2,000 years of Christian tradition in a moment because it seems right now. The preachers of the age are telling me this is the right thing to do. We accommodate. Accommodate our mindset. But it's not just accommodation, it's this idea of subordination. It's when we take Christ and subordinate Christ to some other type of way of thinking in our lives, some other worldview, and you really, I think, maybe we need to ask ourselves: How do I think through my life? What has the priority in my life? It's not that other things aren't valuable. The Bible has proverbs from Egyptians, right? We're not afraid of knowledge from other places. But the question is: What has supremacy? What rules over your thinking? Who is on the throne of your mind? Is it the Bible? Is it Christ? Or is it a podcast, a pundit, a newspaper? Is it yourself? Well, I think this is right. I don't care what God says. Jesus and the mindset of the age. We face this struggle, Christianity and. Another example is in the methods of the age, where we take Christ and join him to the methods of the age, where we adopt the way of doing things that show themselves to be so successful around us. Marva Dawn uh, writes about this in her book, Unfettered Hope. She writes about the commodification of the church, how the church is so seduced by the methods of our age. She writes this, The commodities of our society are so attractively packaged It's so alluringly advertised that churches sometimes don't trust their own identity and think they have to be similarly glamorous, even seductive, to appeal to the seekers in their communities, to announce their relevance, to provide all that their members need to make a difference in the world. In the process, and I love this phrase she uses, in the process, the churches are adopting the the culture's device paradigm. The culture's device paradigm and thereby enter into a spiral of weakening, becoming less and less of what the church really is, and then having even less to offer. It's the same picture. It's the peanut butter and mayonnaise, right? It's you're doing this thing. You're you're taking this in. And what it's really doing is weakening your message, not increasing it. But it looks so seductive. I face this all the time as a pastor. I look around, and I see the success of certain kind of what she says, the culture's device paradigm. And I say, well, maybe I should be doing that. Maybe we should be doing that as a church. Maybe the old stuff doesn't work anymore and you need to adopt these things. It's there in our, in our methods, not just our mindset. I face it. I do as a pastor. We face it too in our lives. What methods do you employ as a parent? When you you approach education, or you approach your money, or you approach engaging with other people, or practicing your faith, or giving, or extending mercy, or loving God and loving your neighbor, what methods are you using? Are they biblical methods? or Something else, taking supremacy in how you do things. This is why you should care about this letter, because their problem back then, these people here, these ancient believers, is they had the same problem that we have. It's the problem of syncretism, the problem of Christianity, and of Jesus, and in our mindset, in our methods, in so many ways. So what's the cure? What do we do about this problem? We'll be discussing that as we go through this letter, as Paul helps us to do that as a Holy Spirit... Inspired Scripture help us to do that, but really, in essence, the cure is rather simple, isn't it? The cure is Christ alone. When it comes to the hierarchy of things in your life, if you can imagine your life like a pyramid, there are many parts of that pyramid, many layers and levels to that pyramid, and I'm not trying to say other things don't matter in life, but at the top of that pyramid, in the place of supremacy, must be Jesus Christ. You must be in Christ and in Christ alone. He does not share his throne. Christ must have the supremacy in the hierarchy of our lives. It must be about just Jesus. At that level, at that faith commitment level. Let me show you uh, an illustration here. If you put up that slide, you think, what is Pastor doing? Yeah, on the left side of that are banana peppers i love banana peppers i don't know about you i love them i put them on my hamburger i think they're fantastic they're better than pickles they kill the pickle another side is carrots now what's the difference between these things well we can see a lot of differences right They're different colors and different kind of things but that banana pepper they get out of a little jar you, get those, you know banana peppers This is what it says in the ingredients. Banana peppers, water, distilled vinegar, salt, calcium chloride, sodium benzenate, sodium metabisulfate, yellow number five, natural flavors, polysorbate 80, one pepper, 10 ingredients. You wanna know what the ingredients are of the carrot? Anybody wanna guess? Carrot. Carrot. (laughs) I got this from a website, uh, the One Ingredient Chef go there. It's a, he's got a whole diet plan where he calls you eat foods with one ingredient. There's some sense to that. Why? Because they're pure. They're unadulterated. They're just one thing. And this is what I'm trying to say to you about this book. This is what Paul was saying when he wrote the epistle to the Colossians. He was saying, that carrot is what you need. In your spiritual life, you need a spiritual one-ingredient diet where Jesus is all in all. Where he must have the supremacy. You guys can take that slide now. But that's the diet. Some things are better mixed together, right? We know that. We talked a little bit about that in the children's sermon. Spaghetti and meatballs, better together. Wine and cheese, better together. Simon and Garfunkel, Better together. (laughs) But when it comes to Jesus, if you add anything to him, it's not better. It's not addition, it's subtraction. Just Jesus. We have been going through some challenging times, beloved. Challenging times as a nation challenging times as a church. We've been divided by politics. We've been divided by COVID. We've been divided by philosophies that are being promoted, which constantly remind us that we are at odds with one another, how different we are with one another, how we have nothing in common with one another. And I'm tired of it. I'm weary of it. And it's a time of trauma. I broke my toe. I did a nasty job on it. I did trauma to it. And the doctor told me, you can't exercise your way through. You can't work your way through. You need to heal your way through. And it's just going to take some time. And it's going to take rest. We have been through a trauma, a trauma that has caused fissures, breaks, and hurts, a trauma that has drawn us to polarize ourselves and to be separate from one another and to only think about ourselves in terms of what's different about us. And I guess I'd like to say in this sermon and in this morning, it's time to come together. It's time to be a community. It's time to return to mere Christianity. This is where we can find common ground. It's not Christianity and. It's mere Christianity. That's what Lewis was talking about. The basics. Get it down. It is just Jesus. And maybe it's time just for this one hour a week. For us to gather together. And to make this hour just about Jesus. Wouldn't that be good? Don't we all agree? We are the saints in Christ at RCRC. That is what defines us and unifies us. Let us spend our time focusing on just Jesus. That's why Paul wrote this letter. That's why you should care about it. Because our hope resides in Christ alone, sola Christus, just Jesus. Heavenly Father, I do ask your blessing upon this congregation, upon those who are here, those who are at home, those who are across the country, and perhaps even in other countries. Lord, unite us in Christ. Let us proclaim that what is our identity is being in Christ, that that is the most important thing to who I am and to whom the person sitting next to me is. That is why we're united together. And ultimately, why we have differences, while we have different opinions and different thoughts and all those type of different things, what holds it together is just Jesus. Hear our prayer, Lord, and help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.